0: Welcome to The Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Kaz. And I'm Em. And in today's episode, we're going to
1: focus on all those countless unnamed men and women in the Bible who've been disappeared. Ooh, disappeared in what sense, Em? In the sense that they're victims of terrible violence, but their status as victims is all too often overlooked or ignored by readers of the biblical text. I'm going to be speaking particularly about biblical characters who are impacted by acts of genocide, colonial violence, rape, abduction, and sex trafficking. So, just to give a content warning before we begin, if you find these topics particularly hard to listen to, you might want to skip this episode. And as usual, we'll leave some links to resources and support services in our show notes that some
0: of our listeners might want to check out. Okay, so in essence, we're focusing today on victims whose experiences of victimisation don't always get recognised or acknowledged. Is that right? Yeah, exactly.
1: But it's so important that we do start recognizing the violence they have experienced, particularly because we see similar cases today of people and communities who are victims of horrific crimes, but who are so often ignored by the media, by the judicial system, and by society at large. In other words, justice is not blind. Not every victim of violent crime is treated the same. Not every act of violence is judged to be equally heinous. And some victims get far more sympathy and support
0: than others. Yeah, that's, that's really true. So before we start, um, I wanted to touch on the title of this episode, The Disappeared. Now, it's only recently that I've seen the word disappeared being used to describe something that's done to someone, rather than an action that a person does themselves. So do you want to explain to our listeners why we've chosen to use the word in this way? Sure. So we're used to hearing news reports and true crime stories about people who
1: disappear or go missing. But as a number of true crime analysts have pointed out, That wording suggests the person themselves has played an active role in their disappearance. They have disappeared. They have gone missing. It kind of gives you the impression that they're in some way responsible or that their disappearance is consensual. But in reality, someone else has usually made that person disappear, often causing them harm, abducting them, trafficking them, or even killing them. So by referring to victims as the disappeared, we're reminding ourselves that someone else has made them disappear. It's not a consensual
0: disappearance. It's an act of violence. Mm, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's a really helpful explanation. So where do we begin in our exploration of those who are disappeared in the biblical texts?
1: Well, we can't really do a podcast about the Bible and violence without mentioning war, genocide and ethnic cleansing because all these things rear their ugly head in a number of biblical texts.
0: So, Kaz, can you think of any examples? Oh, yeah. Um, sure, there are way too many examples, actually. There are so many wars and conflicts going on in the Bible to, to even begin mentioning them all. But to offer just one example... According to the Old Testament book of Joshua, the Israelite people settled in the Promised Land by conquering and displacing the ethnic communities who were already living there. Now, whether or not that's historically true is another matter, and biblical scholars have various theories as to how the Israelite settlement in the land of Canaan actually took place. But the important thing for this episode is is that it's certainly depicted in the book of Joshua as a violent conquest and colonisation of this land.
1: Yeah, and it's also depicted as something God is instructing the Israelites to do. At the very start of the book of Joshua, we read the following, and this is a quote. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised to Moses. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. And so from that point on, Joshua starts making plans for the Israelite people to invade the land and take it over by force
0: from the people already living there. It's interesting that the invasion and conquest here is framed as something being done by God. Joshua may be making plans on the ground, but he firmly believes that the Israelites' successful conquest and colonisation of Canaan will be down to God's own hand. And if we look at chapter 3 of the book of Joshua, Joshua assures the Israelites that it is, quote, the living God who will, without fail, drive out all the inhabitants of this land so that the Israelite tribes can claim the land as their own. Yes, that's
1: true. God commands the Israelites to sweep out the current residents of the promised land, so the invasion and colonisation of this land by the Israelites is given divine authorization. And God himself is also understood to be the one who is leading the Israelite forces into this battle. It's such a common theme in other biblical texts, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is often depicted as a warrior God who is fighting alongside and on behalf of his people. The
0: image of God as warrior can be really terrifying, can't it? It's so powerful. Mm. And I'm thinking about our New Testament old violence episode of this podcast where we look at these really violent cosmic battles depicted in the book of Revelation, where God leads his angelic host in a battle to annihilate the enemies of the Christian community. Mm. And that has some resonances with what's going on in some Hebrew Bible Old Testament texts too, where God directs the Israelite troops to utterly destroy everything and everyone they are fighting against. If we stay with the book of Joshua in chapter 8, we read that Joshua and his troops attacked the Canaanite city of Ai, so it's spelled A-I. And this is what happens. First of all, the men of Ai who were battling the Israelites were struck down until all of them were dead. Then the Israelite soldiers went into the city and, quote, attacked it with the edge of the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000. All the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the sword until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. So, in other words, there's a total annihilation of the people living in this
1: city. Not one of them is spared. This happens again in other texts too, where we're told that a people or community are completely destroyed at the command of God often in an effort by the Israelites to take over and colonize their land.
0: Why do you think that these texts depict God seemingly insisting on the total destruction of the people of Canaan? Mm, I think there are a
1: few things going on, and we get a sense of that in a passage from Deuteronomy, where Moses is speaking to the Israelite people prior to their arrival in Canaan. Can you read that
0: out, Kaz? Sure. So this is from um, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is what Moses says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me, to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So what do you think is going on here? Oh, gives me the shivers um mm. it it sounds it 's so merciless isn 't it yeah it 's so uncompromising but it it sounds as though moses main concern is that if the Israelites choose to live among these different peoples rather than destroying them, the people of Israel might start assimilating with other ethnic communities living in the land. And he might be worried that they'll be, the people of Israel will become influenced by these communities, intermarrying with them, following their religious practices, worshipping their gods. And that would make the God of Israel very, very angry. So Moses is perhaps worried that God could turn his anger onto Israel. Rather than protecting them, God could end up destroying them. Yeah,
1: that seems to be the main point Moses is stressing here. Yeah. He's worried that the Israelites might fall into idolatry, which would really displease God and threaten Israel's covenant relationship with God. This comes out clearly in the next few verses of this passage in Deuteronomy. As well as destroying those different communities, Moses also instructs the Israelites to "...break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire." So these people's sacred spaces and objects are to be utterly annihilated as part of the invasion process. People's lives and beliefs are to come under the sword.
0: Yeah, it's as though there's only room in the Promised Land for one people and one religious belief system. And I don't know about you, but I hear some strong resonances between these texts and our more recent colonial history. What do you mean? I'm thinking of European colonisers and Christian missionaries over the past five centuries who were often quick to prohibit or destroy or undermine indigenous religious traditions in the lands they colonised. Christian colonisers and missionaries would often paint indigenous beliefs and practices as dangerous or primitive, and they would try to replace them, often forcibly, with Western Christianity. So colonisation and Christianization went hand in hand in places like North America, Australia, Africa and also here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was part of a wider effort to erode the culture and identity of colonised peoples by undermining and attacking their beliefs, their language, their lifestyles as well as their social systems and cultural practices. Mm. So Indigenous people didn't just lose their land to colonisers their identity as a people or a community was also attacked.
1: Absolutely. The colonial history here in Aotearoa alone shows us that colonisation is not just about the appropriation of land and resources, it's also about conquering the minds and cultural practices of indigenous peoples. An example that comes to mind for me from our context is the Tohunga Suppression Act of 1907. Now, the Maori word tohunga refers to a person who is skilled or expert with a depth of knowledge and insight in a particular area, like rongoa or medicine. This word tohunga is often translated into English as priest, but it encompasses more than our modern understanding of priests. Tohunga were mediators of the spiritual realm, but they also gave advice on economic matters. They were often experts in sacred law, theology, genealogy, healing, tattooing and so on. So... The Tohunga Suppression Act aimed to suppress or outlaw Tohunga as a response to, quote, regressive Māori attitudes. Tohunga was seen as dangerous, and so I do think there is a resonance here with what we read in these biblical texts, where we see the smashing of shrines and high places, the critique of indigenous religious practices, like the worship of the Queen of Heaven and Asherah. In both cases,
0: indigenous spirituality is intentionally disappeared. That's such a great example and a really helpful connection to make between the, the biblical texts and also real life cases um, throughout our history. Mm. What comes out really strongly here, I think, is that colonizers seem to view the spiritual beliefs of colonized peoples as some sort of threat to colonial power, so it can't be tolerated. yeah. But what really disturbs me is that these attitudes about the so-called unworthiness of Indigenous peoples and cultures compared to Western Christendom are far from a thing of the past. I was reading an article by feminist scholar Andrea Smith recently, and she quoted US law professor John Eidsmo, who was still insisting in the 1990s that First Nation communities in the United States had not been quote, established by God, so European settlers had a right to seize the land from them. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he did admit that Christianity may have been forced on First Nations people, but he also claims that, and these are his words, millions of these people are in heaven today as a result. So it's all right. Yeah, I just don't have any words for no, that. Oh No, yeah, It really speaks to the, the hubris of colonial Christianity, doesn't it? Mm. Yep. Oh. It's like regardless of the violence done in its name, the means justifies the end, mm. which is always a, a dangerous path to go down. And that's also made clear in another statement quoted by Andrea Smith from US televangelist and media mogul, Pat Robertson, who back in the 1990s said that First Nations peoples were, and I'm quoting him here, in an arrested state of social development compared to Western Christendom. He continues, and I'm quoting him again, except for our crimes, our wars and our frantic pace of life in the West, what we have is superior to the ways of primitive peoples. Which life do you think people would prefer? Freedom in in an enlightened Christian civilization, or the suffering of subsistence living and superstition in a jungle, you choose. Ugh. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know, Pat. Um, as you admit yourself, our so-called enlightened Christian civilization is full of war, and violence, and crimes often committed against some of our most vulnerable communities. And it's it's so interesting, isn't it, that he undermines Indigenous beliefs and spirituality as nothing more than, air quotes, superstition. It's just, it's so infuriating and objectionable and, and mm. sort of patronising. It's, yeah, it just makes me mad.
1: Yeah, I'm equal parts filled with fury and outrage, but also cringing with embarrassment here.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's not good. But um, do check out uh, Andrea Smith's article. I'll put a link to it in our show notes, but it's it's really worth reading. So in essence, it's not just people who are disappeared by the violence of colonialism. Indigenous beliefs, practices and cultures are also made to vanish or they're replaced forcibly by the dominant structures and belief systems of the colonisers.
1: Yeah, and so often these new structures imposed by the colonisers are just so incredibly harmful to indigenous communities. One example that comes to mind is the residential school system instituted by the Canadian government in the late 19th century and run by Christian churches for more than half a century. These residential boarding schools were set up for indigenous children and their attendance was compulsory despite their parents' objections. So what was the purpose of these schools? So basically the aim of the schools was to assimilate First Nations people into the culture, beliefs and social systems of the Western colonisers. These schools worked to disrupt the transmission of indigenous practices, languages and beliefs across the generations. And according to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, government and religious organisations of the day viewed these schools as, and I'm quoting here, engines of cultural and spiritual change where savages would emerge as Christian white men.
0: Oh, that yeah, that just sounds horrendous. Mm. You know, that language of white supremacy can never lead to anything but violence, can it? And on top of that, the very act of taking a child away from their parents, their home and their cultural heritage must have just been so traumatising for them.
1: Yeah, and not only that, What has come to light more recently is that these schools were horrifically harsh. Students suffered from various forms of abuse at the hands of teachers and administrators, including sexual and physical assault. Other problems included malnourishment and poor water quality, overcrowding, poor sanitation, inadequate heating and little or no medical care. And of course the result was that diseases like influenza and tuberculosis spread quickly among the children. According to one report I read, the death rate of children at these schools was far, far higher than that of the general population. In one school, the mortality rate of students reached 69%. And if children went, air quotes, missing from these schools, their disappearances weren't always reported to the authorities. Just last year, hundreds of unmarked graves were found on the former sites of a number of these residential schools. It's estimated that around 6,000 children died while attending these schools.
0: Oh, that—that that is just so utterly heartbreaking. I mean, there are no words really to capture how awful that is. So in essence, church and state conspired to enact structural violence against indigenous people on a massive scale and these children were disappeared in a wider effort to disappear an entire indigenous culture it's just utterly inexcusable now you mentioned canada's truth and reconciliation committee a moment ago could you tell us a bit more about that Sure, so the committee was initiated in 2008 to collect
1: the testimonies of indigenous people affected by the residential school system. About 7,000 indigenous people told their stories and the committee eventually published a six-volume, 4,000-plus page report in 2015 which detailed survivor testimonies and other historical documents of the time. The conclusion of the report was that During the 51 years that these schools existed, the Canadian government had pursued a policy of what amounted to cultural genocide. As a result, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation was created, which works to educate Canadians about this horrendous and shameful episode in Canadian history, and to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again.
0: I mean, I guess that's a step in the right direction, listening to survivors' testimonies of trauma in their own words is such an important part of the journey towards some form of reconciliation. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking back to the biblical texts where we read about different peoples and communities being utterly annihilated, like the people in the city of Ai. It strikes me that we never hear their voices or their testimonies, do we? These victims of horrific violence are totally disappeared from the wider biblical narrative, but there's no attempt to mourn them in the biblical texts, and their violent deaths are not often recognised in biblical scholarship either.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. But just going back to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission for a moment, while I think it's important to applaud the work that's already been done, there is so, so much more to do. The country's legacy of colonial violence has by no means been dismantled. And I could, and should say, the same thing about other colonised countries too. The fallout from colonial oppression continues to impact Indigenous communities to this day. And it's easy, especially for Westerners, to pretend that colonisation was something that happened in the past. But that totally denies the ongoing, tangible effects of colonisation on Indigenous communities today. Indigenous peoples continue to live with the reality of losses, suffered through having their land stolen, their language banned, their culture denied, and of course, their religious traditions outlawed.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's so true. So-called post-colonial countries still have plenty of structures and systems that work to continually oppress Indigenous communities. And what we also see is that these structures and systems often intersect with certain dominant social ideologies to exacerbate the oppression of particular groups of Indigenous or First Nations people. Can you give an example, Kez? Yes, I'm thinking particularly of violence against Indigenous women and girls and other women and girls of colour. I'm very aware that here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Maori women and girls are significantly more likely to be victims of sexual and physical violence. Recent statistics suggest that around half of Maori women will experience sexual or physical violence during their lifetime. And the perpetrator is often not Maori himself, and I think that's important to stress. It's also the same in other countries too, in Canada, Australia and the United States. All of these places likewise report higher rates of gender-based violence being perpetrated against Indigenous and First Nations women and most often perpetrated by white men. This is something that that feminist scholars identify as as being an integral part of the colonising process. European colonisers drew on patriarchal ideologies and stereotypes to label Indigenous women as sexually sinful or less than human and therefore ultimately rapable. And according to Andrea Smith, who I uh, mentioned earlier, and I'm quoting her here, she says, sexual violence is not simply a tool of patriarchy, but it is also a tool of colonialism and racism. And she carries on by saying, sexual violence does not simply just occur within the process of colonialism, but colonialism is itself structured by the logic of sexual violence. And that logic, according to Andrea Smith, it it continues to be seen today in North American laws and policies towards indigenous people.
1: Yeah, and I think we've seen a similar process here in the Southern Hemisphere too. Maori women and First Nations women in Australia continue to be seriously impacted by sexual violence that's been such an integral part of our country's colonial history. But it's interesting because this topic makes me think of some biblical texts where indigenous, non-Israelite women are the victims of horrific gender-based violence, but because of their marginalisation and othered status, their victimisation is glossed over, or even given divine approval.
0: Oh, can you give me an example of, of where that happens?
1: Sure. So the rape and abduction of women during warfare is reported a number of times in the biblical texts. In the book of Numbers chapter 31, Moses instructs the Israelite army to go to war against the people of Midian so that they may, quote, execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. We read that the Israelites kill every man in Midian and they take all the women and girls captive. Moses then tells the Israelite soldiers that they can keep the Midianite girls who are still virgins for themselves.
0: Oh no, and and what happens to the Midianite women who aren't? Virgins, they're murdered too
1: because Moses is worried that the more experienced women will lead the Israelites into idolatry and sinful sexual practices.
0: Oh, that's such a grim story, isn't it? Um, so, so basically, young Midianite girls are being treated like sexual objects to be used and abused by Israelite men. But that's not problematized at all in the biblical text, is it? It's just part and parcel of warfare. Women's bodies become the collateral damage in battles fought by men. But why does no one in this narrative care about the fates of these women?
1: Unfortunately, rape during wartime has always been so ubiquitous that it's almost seen as an inevitable, even acceptable part of warfare. Mm. Women become the war spoil, the reward for those who enjoy victory in battle. The bodies of conquered women are reduced to objects that can be used and abused for pleasure. These women are objectified and othered to the point that they're not deemed worthy of any rights or respect. And we've seen this all the way throughout history, right up to the present day, and there are just too many instances to mention. But just to name a few from the past century or so, there are the many Yazidi women taken captive, raped and sold into slavery by members of ISIS during 2014. There's the Vietnamese women who were raped and abused by American troops during the Vietnamese War and here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's the equally horrific case that happened in 1881 at the settlement of Parihaka in Taranaki. Oh, okay, what happened at Parihaka? So, hundreds of British troops invaded the settlement on the 5th of November 1881, and the village was destroyed. Many of the men living there were arrested and detained for months without trial, and the women and girls left behind were subjected to rape and sexual assault by the government troops. Many of the victims never spoke out about their trauma because of the shame associated with sexual violence. And it's only very recently that this aspect of Parihaka's history has been acknowledged in the public
0: sphere. I mean, all of these are such incredibly heartrending cases, aren't they? Yeah. And you're right, we could fill in a whole podcast series just talking about the countless instances of wartime rape atrocities because it's as old as time itself, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But going back to the biblical texts that speak about wartime rape, do we ever find out about what happens to the women and girls who are taken captive? In some cases, no. What happens to them after their
1: abduction is usually not mentioned.
0: Okay, so they're just disappeared from the narrative,
1: are they? Yes, exactly. Exactly. In Genesis 34, for example, the sons of Jacob take their revenge on the Hivite people living in the city of Shechem by killing all the men and abducting all the women, as well as looting the Hivite's possessions, such as
0: their cattle, their donkeys, and anything else of value. And that that seems to suggest these women are just another part of the war spoil, doesn't it? Just more of the enemy's possessions to loot and pillage.
1: Yeah, it does. But there is one biblical text that offers us some insights into what might lie in wait for at least some of these women taken captive by Israelite soldiers during warfare. It's actually a law that's included in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. Have you
0: heard of it, Kaz? Yes, I I know which law you're talking about. It's often referred to by biblical scholars as the so-called law of the captive war bride. Mm. Although... That's such a problematic name because the woman in the text is less a bride than a victim of wartime rape. Can you tell the listeners a bit about this law? Yes, sure. So it essentially allows Israelite soldiers who take foreign prisoners to choose a woman from among these prisoners and make her his wife if he essentially finds her desirable. And after he takes her home, she has to go through various purity rituals before he can then have sex with her. Now, I've read some biblical scholars declare that this is a relatively air quotes humanitarian law, mainly because the man is not allowed to sell this woman into slavery if he changes his mind about keeping her. You know, if if he no longer finds her desirable, he can't sell her into slavery. But I'm sorry that interpretation that interpretation of the law as in any way humanitarian is just so problematic can you tell us why you think that yeah because the woman's status as a prisoner of war essentially erases her agency doesn't it and it erases her ability to give her consent to what's happening to her yeah she's a prisoner who's been taken captive by an israelite man who will eventually have sex with her or in other words he will rape her Because as a prisoner, she will have absolutely no right to withhold her consent. So there's nothing humanitarian about that. Nothing at all. Yeah, I completely agree. And
1: again, we see the erasure of non-Israelite women's abuse at the hands of men during times of war. Yeah. This law code may be trying to make the practice of wartime rape sound more respectable, but it still betrays the fact that captive women were totally denied their sexual agency. Mm. They were othered to the extent that men's ability to imprison and rape them was mandated by a law code.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. it's interesting, though, isn't it, that some women are more likely to be disappeared from the biblical texts than others. Yeah. Some women can be abducted, imprisoned, raped, or even murdered without anyone even noticing, whereas other women's victimisation is taken very, very seriously. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, I'm, I'm thinking back to the example you gave a moment ago from Genesis 34, where Jacob's sons abducted all the Hivite women from Shechem. Now, we spoke about this text in our episode titled Hashtag Me Too, and the reason Jacob's sons wanted revenge on the Hivites was that a Hivite prince called Shechem had raped and abducted their sister Dina. Mm. So while Dina's brothers see nothing wrong with abducting and raping the Hivite women, they're very offended that the same thing happened to Dina. And I think the same process happens with many biblical interpreters, including myself, I must admit, when I first read this text. We spend a lot of time studying Dina's rape as this very traumatic event, but we rarely, if ever, consider what happened to the Hivite women as equally traumatic.
1: Yes, that's so true. And it's not just Dina's story where this process takes place. Another text we looked at in our hashtag me episode was 2 Samuel 13 where we're told about the rape of King David's daughter Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. Now Tamar's rape is treated as a really serious event, particularly by her brother Absalom. But a little later in 2 Samuel we read that Absalom punishes his father David by publicly raping the woman in David's harem. So he's furious about his sister's rape, but isn't above using rape as a weapon to score political points against his father.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting, isn't it, that a bit like with the case of Dina, biblical scholars will devote a lot of time to studying Tamar's rape, but there is far less scholarship on the rapes of the women in David's harem by Absalom. Yeah. And there are many other women in the biblical texts whose rapes get glossed over, both in the text itself and in biblical interpretation. There's Hagar, for example, the Egyptian slave of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapters 16 and 21, whose rape at the hands of her enslavers is rarely acknowledged. Mm. There's Bilhah and Zilpah, also from the book of Genesis, who were enslaved by Jacob's wives Rachel and Leah. There's the Midianite woman Cosby from Numbers 25, whose rape and murder is cause for celebration in the Israelite camp, rather than outrage or mourning. I'm seeing a pattern emerging here, Kez. Do you notice what these women have in common with each other? Yes, I do. Once again, it it seems to be foreign women and or enslaved women whose victimisation is just not being recognised.
1: Yes, Exactly. These women's marginalised identities explain why their rapes aren't treated as seriously as the rapes of, say, Tamar or Dinah. These women are othered by virtue of their ethnicity and or their enslaved status. And as a result, the narrator of their narratives treats their rapes as far less serious or significant than the rape of a patriarch's daughter or an Israelite princess.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so women such as, Hagar, Cosby, Bilha and Zilpa are essentially disappeared from their own narratives of of victimisation. Yes, exactly. And that still happens today, doesn't it? Particularly in media reporting of rapes, murders and disappearances. Totally. We could also argue that
1: it influences how seriously these crimes are taken by law enforcement and the judicial system.
0: Have you heard of missing white woman syndrome, Kaz? Um, I've come across the term before, but it would be helpful if you could tell us a bit more about it. Okay, so Missing
1: White Woman Syndrome is a term coined by PBS news anchor Gwen Ifill, and it refers to the fact that media reports about people who have been disappeared or murdered are way more likely to spend time reporting on female victims who are white, middle class, young, traditionally pretty and heterosexual. Meanwhile, they tend to overlook or ignore men and women who don't fit this pattern, including people of colour, older people, queer people, working class people, or anyone whose lifestyle is deemed somehow immoral or undesirable by contemporary society. So sex workers, the homeless, people living in poverty or who have chronic mental illness or substance abuse issues. Now, although the term Missing White Woman Syndrome was coined in the context of missing persons cases, it's also used in relation to coverage of other violent crimes, including
0: kidnappings, homicide and sexual assault. That's really interesting. And do you know statistically if the focus on white young pretty women is warranted? Like, for example, are they more likely than others to be victims of serious crime? No, they aren't. But they do continue to be overrepresented in the media
1: compared to the media coverage given to other missing and murdered people, particularly people of colour.
0: Yeah, and that's so problematic, isn't it? Because it it reinforces the idea that some victims deserve more attention and sympathy than others. It's as though their victimisation is deemed more important or more newsworthy. The crimes committed against them ought to be taken more seriously. We ought to care more about some victims rather than others. Yes, exactly. Missing white woman syndrome reinforces to
1: us which victims deserve our attention and our sympathy and which victims we really shouldn't care about as much. It's as though some people's lives are less important or less valuable than others.
0: Uh, That reminds me of a case here in Aotearoa, New Zealand from a few years ago, do you, do you remember the Grace Mullane case, Em? Mm, I remember it really clearly, but tell our listeners a bit more about it. So Grace Mullane was a young British tourist who went missing in December 2018 while she was backpacking in Auckland. Now tragically, her body was discovered just over a week later and it was clear that she'd been murdered. Both her disappearance and murder were given huge media coverage both here in Aotearoa and globally too. Vigils and memorials were held across New Zealand that were attended by thousands of people. Our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern publicly expressed her sympathies to Grace's family, and Auckland's iconic Sky Tower and Harbour Bridge were lit up with a white ribbon sign to memorialise her. Yet just a few weeks after Grace's murder, Maori woman Michelle Kayla Hurinui was killed by a male acquaintance in a brutal attack that also left her infant son critically injured. Now, when I searched for news stories about Michelle's murder, I only found one that was written around the time of her death and four or five others relating to the trial of her killer. As an Indigenous working-class woman, Michelle was clearly not deemed worthy of candlelit vigils or the Sky Tower lit up in her memory, Nor did the Prime Minister publicly express sympathy to her family. Now, I am not saying for a moment that Grace Mullane didn't deserve these things. But media reporting and the mourning of murder victims should not be a zero-sum game. I mean, surely all murder victims deserve our public and personal mourning.
1: Yes, absolutely. In this process of disappearing certain victims of violent crime happens so, so often. It actually reminds me of some of the cases we discussed in our episode about powerful men. I'm sure we've all heard of Jeffrey Epstein, Keith Raniere, and Harvey Weinstein, serial sexual offenders whose crimes have had masses of media coverage. Yeah, and rightly so. Yes, of course. But it's interesting that there's been far less media attention given to Peter Nygaard, another equally heinous sexual predator we discussed during that episode.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right, because I'd never even heard of him myself until I came across a podcast about the case quite by chance. Exactly, and it was much harder to find news articles about him when I was looking for them,
1: despite the fact that... If he's guilty of all the crimes he's been charged with, he's a far more prolific serial rapist than the likes of Epstein, Ranieri or Weinstein. Nygard's own son Kai put it really powerfully when he said that his father doesn't have a
0: skeleton in his closet, he has an entire graveyard. Oh yeah, that is that's really powerful. So why do you think there is less interest in Nygard's case?
1: Well, I can't say for sure, but it's very telling that compared to the women victimised by Epstein, Ranieri and Weinstein, the majority of whom were white women, many of Nygaard's victims were young women from the Bahamas. So it really angers me that Nygaard's crimes weren't given nearly as much attention, because I suspect that it has a lot to do with the fact that his victims were young, working class women of colour.
0: Yes, yes, that's so true. And I remember in our episode about dangerous biblical men, we were comparing men like Nygard to King Xerxes of Persia, who we read about in the Book of Esther. And if you recall, Xerxes had filled his harem with girls who'd been trafficked from all across the Persian Empire. And we made a point about these girls being voiceless victims of sexual abuse and trafficking. There are ethnically other girls from colonised land whose victimisation is so overlooked by readers and interpreters of the story. So given our discussion in this episode, I think that we can also consider these girls in the Book of Esther as having been disappeared and as being victims of missing white women syndrome. They're colonised, they're displaced, they're sexually abused and they're ultimately forgotten by everyone. That's so true. Their ethnic
1: otherness makes them incredibly vulnerable to readers' lack of concern for them. So, um,
0: what are some of the things that we can do, do you think, to bring more attention to all the people we've spoken about today who've been disappeared from the biblical texts? And how can we start to overcome missing white women's syndrome in biblical studies?
1: I think the simple answer to that is to keep talking and writing about the disappeared in biblical texts and to call out this disappearing for what it is. It's racism. And I also think we need to call out our colleagues who perpetuate this disappearing, and we need to expose and confront the whiteness that permeates biblical scholarship.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And if we keep missing white women's syndrome in our minds as we read the biblical texts, I think it could help us uncover the lost voices of victims and survivors whose trauma is so often ignored or or goes unnoticed by biblical readers. And we can also use this as a platform to talk about the ongoing violence of colonialism in our contemporary context too, to call out the injustice of the numerous ways that governments, the media, and religious institutions play a role in downplaying, justifying, or erasing the violence done against Indigenous and First Nations communities.
1: So, Kez, shall we end the episode by telling our listeners what we've been reading,
0: or watching or listening to this week? Sure. So, as part of the research for this episode, I've been listening to a fascinating podcast produced by Connie Walker at CBC, It's called Missing and Murdered, and season two is all about the tragic death in the 1970s of a Cree child called Cleo Simaginus Nicotine, whose family was from Saskatchewan. The podcast stands out for me because it doesn't just focus on Cleo's death, but also shines a light on some of the issues we've mentioned in this episode. The Canadian government's treatment of First Nations children, the residential school system, and the legacy of colonialism that has inflicted so much violence on First Nations' lives. Mm. So it's quite hard to listen to because the subject matter is so tragic, so awful, but it is a very, very well-made podcast, very powerful, and I would highly recommend it.
1: Oh, excellent. I've just made a note to save that podcast. Thank you. Okay, so after touching on the whiteness of biblical scholarship, I feel like I need to follow that up by saying that there is some amazing work that pushes back against and resists the hegemony of whiteness, lots of it coming out of countries in the southern hemisphere. So my plug for today is a book that recently celebrated its 25th anniversary. It's called Voices from the Margin, Interpreting the Bible in the Third World. Yes. It's edited by Razia Sugitharaja, and it's just an exquisite collection of biblical interpretations which read various biblical texts from the margins, in particular from the margins of whiteness. As I said, there's quite a bit of really excellent and exciting scholarship emerging in this area, but if you're interested in this kind of thing, then Sugitharaj's collection is a really great place to start.
0: Yeah, it's a great book, isn't it? Okay, so thanks for listening to this episode of Bloody Bible. As usual, you'll find our show notes on the website, along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye.
2: Who have made it to the end of the bloody bible podcast uh, this is the last episode in this series not sure at this stage if we'll be back for more episodes or not uh, so do keep those reviews coming in they really help us out and will help determine the future of this podcast the bloody bible podcast is supported by funding from the united kingdom arts and humanities research council as part of the shiloh project research grant Our special thanks to our friend, Professor Johannes Stiebert at the University of Leeds, who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast has been produced by the amazing Carolyn Blythe, the extremely clever Emily Colgan, and me, the menial Richard Bonifant, uh, who also recorded and edited each episode. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz-Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West. As Kaz has said in each episode, our social media accounts are available. Do reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to hear what you've thought of the entire series. Thanks for listening.